0: Everyone, I hope you're all doing so well. I can't believe it, but welcome to the first episode of the Criminal Makeup Podcast. I cannot believe this day is finally here. Yes, I now have a podcast, and I am so so excited for this so hi if this is your first time coming across me i'm danielle kirsty i make true crime videos over on youtube and i've been doing it for a while now and we all love true crime over there we just can't get enough and a lot of people have been asking for a podcast so here we are and if there is one thing that you need to know about me is that i am true crime obsessed okay and i mean obsessed. I was that strange child that was just absolutely fascinated by serial killers. I was. I was that child. I used to binge watch crime dramas with my nan. I do blame my nan a lot for my true crime obsession. And I used to be that kid that would bore all of their friends by telling them all about the gruesome murder cases, and nobody was ever interested in anything that I had to say, but I didn't care. I was always talking about true crime and I was so obsessed with true crime that I actually went to university to study for a degree in law and criminology. So yeah, obsessed is probably an understatement. And even now after spending all week researching cases for my YouTube channel, now for my podcast, I will still casually sit down on a Saturday night and turn on Netflix and settle down with a true crime documentary. I literally cannot get enough. But it's not just true crime that fascinates me. Those of you that already know me know that I have a particular interest in the criminal mind. And that is the area in particular that intrigues me the most. And that is what made me go to university to study for a law and criminology degree. And that is why I make the kind of content that I do now. I grew up hearing about the infamous serial killers in the UK. So Fred and Rose West, Ian Brady, Myra Hinley. And just a side note, I actually did a project in primary school on Myra Hinley and Ian Brady. And I was like, 11 years old? I told you I was that weird kid that was obsessed with serial killers. I mean, what 11 year old does a project on the Moores murders? And I also did do a project on Fred and Rose West as well, but that was in secondary school. So I was a little bit older, but still not that much older. And when I was growing up fascinated by all of these stories, the main thought that would go through my mind was, Why do people do these things? And honestly, I still ask myself those questions to this day. In fact, the more cases I research, the more questions I'm left with. So yes, I like to understand why criminals do what they do. I love to dive into their background, their childhood. Where did things go wrong? What happened? Were they born like this or were they made like this? Basically, I like to understand what elements make up a criminal. Hence the name of this podcast, the criminal makeup. So in this podcast, we're going to be diving into the minds of these criminals. We're going to be looking at their upbringing, their relationships. Did they have a head injury? Basically just everything that makes them tick. Everything that could have made them into the person that they became. And in today's episode, the very first episode, we are diving right in. We are not messing around over here, okay? We are covering the infamous Mick Philpott and oh my god, does this man make my blood boil? Mick Philpott was just the worst. He literally was the worst. He was evil, narcissistic, a predator. He thought that he could do whatever he wanted and get away with it. And if you're from the UK, I'm sure you've heard of Mick Philpott because he is pretty infamous. And when this happened back in 2012, 2013, it was all over the media. But I'm going to say this right now. Half the things that I'm going to be talking about in this case, I wasn't even aware of until I did my research and I thought I knew this case pretty well. So yeah, McPhilpot, not a good person and that is an understatement. And if you know who he is, he is worse than you thought. So for those of you listening that already know who I am, already know that I have a YouTube channel, I just want to quickly say here that some of these episodes will be cases that I've already covered on my YouTube channel. But... There are going to be brand new cases that I've never covered on YouTube before, right here on this podcast. So hold tight for episode four. That is all I'm going to say. But anyway, we have a hell of a lot to get through in today's case. So let's just jump straight in. So, are you guys ready? You're going to be so frustrated with this case and just, just everything, okay? So, Just a word of warning. Okay, so Mick Philpott was born in 1956 and Mick grew up in Derby, which is just a city in the middle center of England. And that is it. That's all I know about Mick's childhood. And that really annoys me. I really don't like it when I can't find out about people's background and childhood upbringing and all stuff like that. Because I do think that it's important to these stories. I do think it is important to look back at someone's childhood to just see what what happened, where things went wrong. Considering how much of a terrible person he is, I think we can assume that he didn't have the best upbringing and he also has daddy issues, okay? All we know from mixed life is that he finished school and as soon as he finished school, he joined the army at age 19. But from the age of 19, we do know quite a lot about mixed life and already at the age of 19, he was not a nice person. He was described as arrogant, a loud mouth, hockey and mick at the age of 19 and for the rest of his life mick thought that he was god's gift to this world and especially god's gift to women and he is just your typical narcissist. Like literally, if you looked up narcissist in the dictionary, there would be a picture of Mick Philpott. But not only was he a narcissist, he also was incredibly violent. He was known to have a very bad temper and he was known to just snap at any time. And I didn't see this anywhere. I always like to clarify when I don't see anything and it's just my opinion. So I didn't see this anywhere, but I think he's a sociopath. 100%. And like I said, if you're from the UK, I'm pretty sure you know who Mick Philpott is. But there is so much more to this story than I even realized. Like I said, I've wanted to cover this case for the longest time because I vividly remember this case happening. Because when this case was going on, like the trial of this case, I was in uni getting my criminology degree. And even back then, when I didn't know the full backstory of everything, Mick Philbott would make my blood boil. Just his face. You know when some people just have that face? And it just, it just makes you angry. It just makes you want to punch them. Mick Philpott has that face for me. Okay, so like I said, Mick, 19, he's not a good person. And he's just about to join the army. But weeks before he did join the army, he met a 15-year-old girl called Kim Hill. 15. She's a child. And Mick is an adult young adult, yes, I'll give you that, but I don't care. She's a child. But there is definitely a power imbalance here, like 100%. Mick is a very intimidating character. He is a bully. So he immediately enters into a relationship with this 15-year-old child. And right from the beginning, he was very controlling, he was manipulative, and he was violent. He was abusive. He pretty much controlled everything that she did. He told her how she was allowed to dress. He told her who she was allowed to be friends with, where she was allowed to go, He set curfews on when she was allowed out of the house, when she had to be back by. It's like, oh. And if Kim didn't abide by these rules, he would be physically violent towards her. He is very insecure as well, which... All narcissists are really, aren't they? He would accuse Kim of cheating on him constantly. And obviously she wasn't, and she would say that she wasn't, but Mick never used to believe her. And because he would accuse her of cheating, he would actually run away from the army, like where he was posted. I don't know where, the base, I don't know. He was in the UK, he wasn't abroad or anything. He would return. Just to beat her up the violence would get more and more extreme as their relationship went on and i am talking about extreme so there was this one incident where he broke her kneecap with a hammer there was then this other incident and i just cannot believe this like when i was reading this i was like oh my god because i actually read this and it's come from kim herself so then there was this other time where he shot her in the groin with a crossbow and he did this because he thought that she was dressed inappropriately. It's like, you cannot make this stuff up. It's oh my God. And I couldn't believe it when I was reading all of this, because it was this point in the story. Like, I didn't know any of this before my research. And I just couldn't believe it, because I knew that Mick was a bad person. But I was like, oh my God, he really has always been the worst. There were many other injuries as well that Kim suffered at the hands of Mick. She suffered a cracked cheekbone, a broken nose. She always had bruises. She had bite marks. There was even one time, this just makes me go really funny, where he would bend her fingers back until they broke. Oh! So, the level of violence that Mick is showing towards Kim, it's extreme. It's a lot. It's, it's really bad. And this violence wouldn't just happen behind closed doors. Oh, no, no. He did it in public. I mean, he may not do the extreme stuff in public. Like, I doubt he would shoot her in the groin in public, but he would definitely beat her in public in front of people, and no one would say anything. There was one time when Mick was in the pub, Kim was also there, and he was playing pool with his friends, and he called over to Kim to join him to play pool. He wanted a partner, and Kim didn't want to play, so she said, no, I don't want to play. So what did Mick do in retaliation? He picked up the pool cue and smashed it over Kim's face, and this was in a pub in front of loads of people, and not one person in that pub did anything. Not one person said anything nothing. And Mick was that typical manipulative narcissist. Because whenever Kim did pluck up the courage to end the relationship or confront him about the violence, Mick would turn on the fake tears. He would turn on the crocodile tears. He would break down crying. He'd be like, I'm so sorry. I promise my behavior will change. And he was also one of those typical narcissists that would turn the situation around and make themselves the victim. (laughs) I think we all know somebody like that. So, Kim would end up feeling sorry for Mick, and Kim would end up apologizing to Mick, and this is what narcissists do. So, eventually in 1978, Kim had been with Mick for approximately two years now. She is around 17, and she decided that enough was enough. And Kim finally left Mick and went to live with her parents. And as you can imagine, this did not go down well with Mick at all. He was absolutely furious. And Mick wasn't exactly going to let this slide, so he planned out to get revenge. So on the 4th of July 1978, Mick broke into Kim's parents' house. He broke in in the middle of the night, and it was just Kim and her mom at home. Kim's dad was out at work. And Mick broke in when Kim and her mom were just in their beds sleeping. So Mick broke in and he decided to just sit in the living room. Just sit there, which is creepy as hell. He was sat on the sofa for a little while and then all of a sudden he gets up, he goes to the kitchen and he grabs a knife. He then went upstairs and he just started stabbing Kim When she was sleeping. Kim woke up to being stabbed and she was screaming, which then alerted her mom Shirley. Shirley got up, ran to her daughter, saw what was happening, tried to wrestle Mick off of her daughter, and then Mick turned on Kim's mom. And Mick started stabbing Shirley as well. Mick stabbed Shirley, Kim's mom, a total number of 11 times before he turned back around And continued his attack on Kim. Now this was not a quiet attack at all. Both Kim and Shirley were screaming. I'm sure Mick was probably making some noise as well. So all of this commotion did alert the neighbors and the police were called. So when the police did arrive, Mick had finished his attack. He was actually waiting at the bottom of the stairs. I don't know if he just happened to be there or he was waiting for the police. I don't really know. But he was there at the bottom of the stairs. He was still holding the bloody knife and he just looked up at the police. He looked up at the paramedics. And he just started laughing. And he said so chillingly, like, I cannot believe he said this. He said, quote, you're wasting your time with that one. She's a goner. So obviously the paramedics rushed to Kim and Shirley. And Shirley, like I said, had been stabbed 11 times. It was mostly in the back. And very fortunately, she was still alive. And Kim had been stabbed a total number of 27 times times. She survived, thank God, but I don't know how with the injuries that she sustained. Both of her lungs had been punctured, as well as her liver, her kidneys, and her bladder. Her stomach had been completely ripped open, like, and I mean completely ripped open. Her stomach was, I think it was a bit outside of her body. Mick had completely slashed her up, like completely gutted her basically. And at the time, no one thought that she was going to make it because her injuries were just that bad. But amazingly, after recovering for four months in the hospital, she did survive. Mick was arrested for this and charged for attempted murder of Kim and GBH. And he was found guilty, thank God. And he was sentenced to seven years. Seven years. Like seriously, what the actual house? Seven years. I just... Oh my God, this gets my blood boiling. No, 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 no. He committed GBH within 10, which I know carries a maximum sentence of life in prison as well as attempted murder. But he didn't actually end up serving all seven of those years. Nah. No. <laughs> get this, get this. Oh my God. He ended up only serving three, three years three years for attempted murder and GBH. Have you ever heard of something so ridiculous? And uh, let me know if you knew any of that, like backstory, because I didn't know any of that. Like I could not believe it. Like it just makes me angry because he should have been in prison from that moment on and he should have been in prison for a very long time. And if he was given a more appropriate sentence for his crimes, today's case may not have taken place. Okay, so Mick gets out after three and a half years, sorry half. That half makes all the difference. So he's around 25 or 26, because we don't know his birthday. And this is when he meets a woman called Pamela Lomax. And he actually went on to marry Pamela, and they had three kids together. And again, Mick was pretty much the same with Pamela as he was to Kim. He was very manipulative, he was very controlling, he was very violent and abusive. And Pamela ended up being trapped in a relationship with Mick for 10 years years. She only ever got out of that relationship because Mick was bored of her and he ended it and he moved on to someone else. So now that Mick was moving on to somebody else, he was now 37 years old and this is when he starts up a relationship with a girl child called Heather who is only 14 years old. So yeah, he is now grooming young teenagers. Yeah, and I do mean grooming. I'm not using that word lightly. So Mick first met Heather when he was fishing by a lake, because Heather, she was 14, she went by the lake to hang out with her friends. It was just like a little hangout place that her and her friends went, and Mick was fishing, and he would see Heather there quite often. And every time he went fishing, he would like try and get her attention, he would try and speak to her, and he would also be nice to Heather as well. He would buy her alcohol, he would buy her cigarettes, and Mick being the absolute dick that he is, he would make Heather feel like she owed him, and Mick would put pressure on Heather to meet up with him on her own. And initially, Heather did say no, and she did avoid it, but she didn't know how to keep saying no to Mick. I mean, he's very manipulative, and she's 14, so it wasn't long until she was meeting up with Mick approximately four times a week, and when they would meet up, Mick would tell her how much he loved her. He then started pressurizing her into having sex with him, and he ended up taking Heather's virginity when she's only 14, in a sleeping bag next to the lake and i feel like i need to say this again she is 14. this is statutory rape This is rape. Heather's parents did try their hardest to stop this relationship. They did go to the police on a number of occasions to try and get the police involved. But Mick had manipulated Heather so much that every time they did kind of break up, Heather would just go back to him. And this kind of went on for approximately two years. So now Heather is 16 years old and she runs away to go and live with Mick. And she moves into Mick's house, which is number 18 Victory Road in Derby, which is a pretty infamous house, because that is where today's case takes place. So not long after Heather moves in, she does get homesick. I think she does regret moving in with Mick, and she wants to move back in with her parents. Wow, Mick was not going to have this, was he? And this is when Heather experienced, for the first time, Mick's violent side. And as soon as Heather told Mick that she wanted to go back and live with her parents, I don't even think she said, I want to break up. I think she just said, I want to go back and live with my parents. Well, Mick wasn't gonna have this, and as soon as she said this, he pinned her to the floor and just started beating her. From that moment on, the abuse continued, and it only got worse. Heather, at some point, did fall pregnant, and it was around this time when she had fallen pregnant that Mick was now demanding sex from her at least five times a day. One time, she did refuse, because she doesn't want to have sex with him. Like, she can refuse, she can say no, no is a complete sentence but no is not an option when it comes to mick and one time when she did say no he raped her at knife point mick also forced heather at 16 years old she's pregnant to go out and get a job and earn money whilst he sat on his ass all day and watched tv and then when she got her wages. would take all of her wages. And Heather did go on to have two children with Mick. She had two sons and Mick threatened to kill the children if she ever stepped out of line. Mick would also openly be violent towards Heather in front of the children. And as the two sons got older, Mick would encourage his sons to join in with the violence of their mother. And he would tell his sons to tell their mom, tell mommy what a naughty bitch she is. And of course, the son not knowing any different, because this is a part of his daily life. And the three-year-old son would say things like that to his mom. And the three-year-old son would also punch his mom under his dad's instructions. And when Mick did start to encourage the children to be violent towards their mom, this was the final straw for Heather. She was like, okay, no, I'm not letting this happen. So Heather, at the age of 20 at this point, she had now been with Mick for six years. She managed to finally escape with her two children and get away from Mick. So we're in the year 2000 now. Mick is approximately 44. And this is when Mick finds 19-year-old Mairead Duffy, who is a very, very important and key character today's story. So yes, Mairead is 19. She is an adult, but she is still incredibly young. He's 44 and Mairead is incredibly vulnerable as well because she had literally just gotten out of an abusive relationship. Mairead was also a single mom when she met Mick. She had a son named Dwayne and it wasn't long after the relationship started that Mairead and her son Dwayne had moved in to 18 Victory Road Derby, which is Mick's house. And Mick was no different to Maraid. He was abusive, violent, manipulative, controlling. And it wasn't long after Maraid moved into the house that she also did fall pregnant. So Mick now had Maraid under his control. And you would think that he would be pretty content with that, wouldn't you? Because so far, up until this point of the story, he's only ever had one victim. At a time. He's never been in a relationship with multiple people at the same time. Well, uh, this was all about to change because not long after meeting Marade, Mick starts another relationship with a woman, or should I say girl, called Elisa, who is only 16 years old at this point. Another child. I just feel like I am repeating myself so much in this video, but it baffles me. How was he able to get away with this? Like, how? Like oh. Okay, so Lisa was another incredibly vulnerable girl. She was a single mom at the time and Mick targeted her. He thought that he could manipulate and groom her, which he did. So like I said, up until this point in the story, he has only ever been, as far as we are aware, he's only ever been in a relationship with one person at a time. Uh, So you may think, oh okay, so is he keeping this relationship with Lisa secret? Is he going behind Maraid's back? Like is he having an affair? No, (laughs) none of that. He openly starts seeing Lisa as well as Maraid. Mick openly told Maraid, this is Lisa, she is my second girlfriend. And within weeks of meeting Lisa, Lisa moves into the house. So it is now Mick, Maraid and Lisa in this, it's not even a three-way relationship, because both Lisa and Maraid are only in a relationship with Mick, it's a very, very weird dynamic, and then obviously there's the children in the house as well, it's just all weird, it's just weird, okay, so Mick at this point is like 44, 45, and he's having a relationship with 19 or 20 year old Maraid at this point, and now 16 year old Lisa, open, in front of the world and no one is saying anything. And Mairead and Lisa had no say in this relationship. It's not like they were all for it. They eventually were groomed and manipulated into thinking that they were okay with it but neither one of them had any saying this. Mick literally just turned up one day and was like, this is Lisa. She is my new girlfriend and you have to accept it. So yeah, pretty weird. Pretty, pretty weird, but it gets weirder than that. Pretty much immediately after Lisa moved in, and I mean immediately, I'm not being dramatic there, she also fell pregnant. And then following this, Mick decided to propose to Morade, so then Mick and Morade are planning their wedding when Lisa is pregnant with Mick's child and if you think things cannot get any weirder than that well you would be wrong because when it eventually does come to the wedding day guess who is bridesmaid uh-huh that's right Lisa was bridesmaid. Make it make sense. How is this even real life? Lisa was the bridesmaid, for all we know, she could be maid of honor, at Mick and Marade's wedding. And Lisa, at this point, is seven months pregnant with Mick's child. I am sorry, but you know the part in the wedding where the person that's officiating the wedding says, does anybody in here object to this wedding? Why did no one bloody stand up? It's like, I personally don't know what grounds you have to have to stand up. Like, does anyone actually stand up and be like, yeah, I object? I don't know what the grounds are to object to a wedding, but I think a 16 year old girl being pregnant by the man who is marrying another woman. I think that that is a pretty good reason to object. And there is footage of this wedding and you can see Elisa, her face has been blurred because her identity has been protected because of this case. And it's just heartbreaking to see how young she is because it's all well and good us uh, sitting here and saying like, oh, she was pregnant and she was a bridesmaid at the wedding and everything. But when you actually see the footage and you see how young she is, it's like, oh my God, she is so vulnerable. And Mick is just completely taking advantage of her, just like he has taken advantage of Maraid, just like he has taken advantage of many other girls before them. So after the wedding, Mick goes home with his new wife, Maraid, and his girlfriend, Lisa. And he now runs the household as if he's like some sort of king. He controls both Lisa and Maraid through a combination of fear, manipulation, and violence. Mick was... The same as he always is it was incredibly violent he was incredibly abusive and again he makes both lisa and marade go out and get a job and earn money whilst he is sat on his ass all day just watching tv and then he would take all of their wages because he would also control the finances of the house so if you know the story of Mick philpot the thing that probably comes to mind first is obviously the tragic events of today's case but then second is probably how many children he had. We did mention it briefly, but both Lisa and Maraid already do have one child with Mick at this point. Well, pretty much immediately after both of them had given birth, they were both pregnant again. And then after giving birth to those children, they were then both pregnant again and then again. And again, over the space of five years, Maraid gave birth to four of mixed children and Lisa gave birth to three of mixed children. So there are now nine, I think, children living in this house because we have seven of Mick's own biological children, but then Mairead and Lisa already did have a child from another relationship. So I think there's nine in this house. To be honest, when I was doing my research, it was a little bit wishy-washy how many children were living in the house at one time, because it does kind of change. And then remember that Mick also has five other children from previous relationships, from the relationship with Pamela and Heather. And then, because we can't mention everything, because there is literally so much to this case, Mick also had two possibly three other children from other relationships and affairs that he'd had. And he even had one child that he'd never even met. So he has a lot of children. He has like 15 or 16 biological children. And then he has stepchildren as well. And Mick wouldn't look after any of these children. It was up to the women to look after these children. So all of the children that were in the house, which is like eight or nine, Maraid and Lisa had to look after the children. Mick wouldn't do anything. And then Lisa and Maraid also had to go out to work because Mick didn't want to go out to work. And then Lisa and Maraid also had to look after the household because Mick didn't want to do anything. So you may be thinking, why the hell did he have so many children? Was he just a loving and caring dad? Did he just want a big family? No. He saw these children as a source of income because all that Mick thought about was child benefits. So in the UK, um, I don't quite know how it is in other countries, but in the UK, there is this thing called child benefits, where the government will help families in need and give them money to look after, bring up their children. And for every additional child you have, the government will pay you more money because you have more children to look after. And it's a great system, of course. In every single case where there is something like this, there will always be people that abuse the system. And Mick was one of those people. Mick was only having more and more children, so he could get more money. Like that is the only motivation he had for having children. It is thought that at one point Mick was receiving up to twenty six thousand pounds a year in child benefits alone. And there are some sources as well that said that he might have even been receiving up to sixty thousand pounds. Because obviously we don't know the exact figures. And then mirage and Lisa also do have jobs, so they're bringing in money. So. He was making a decent amount of money. But even with this situation that Mick had created for himself, he's a little king of his little kingdom. He literally makes me sick. He's raking in a decent amount of money. He has complete control over his wife and his girlfriend. You'd think he would be pretty satisfied, wouldn't you? Well, he wasn't. Mick used to complain that his house was too small. So Mick was still living at 18 Victory Road in Derby and it was a three-bedroom house. And this house was a council house that was provided to Mick and his family from the government so he didn't have to pay for it. And Mick started to complain to the council that the house was too small for the three adults that lived there and all of the children, which was like eight children at this time. Mick was basically demanding a bigger house but the council were like, There's nothing we can do. There's no bigger houses available right now. Like, there's literally nothing that we can do. And of course Mick didn't like this answer. And Mick thought that he could get his own way. And can you blame him? I mean, he pretty much does get his own way in every situation. So Mick decided to go to his local TV news station to try and get this broadcast, to try and get attention and essentially embarrassed Derby Council into giving him a new house, a bigger house. And this was around 2005, 2006, that Mick makes his first TV appearance. So remember that I said that Mick ended up on TV for all of the wrong reasons? Well, that basically starts from here because Mick had all of these plans. He thought that he was gonna go on telly. He thought that he was gonna convince everyone to feel really sorry for him and essentially bully Derby Council into giving him a bigger house. Well, that completely backfired. People saw Mick on TV and instead of feeling sorry for him, he actually got a reputation for being the biggest scrounger in Britain. And I'm not sure if scrounger is a British word. I don't think I've heard anybody from a different country use that word. So if you don't know what scrounger means, it basically just means freeloader, someone that is trying to live at the expense of others. And this turned into a whole media circus and it wasn't long until Mick was popping up on TV here, there, and everywhere, almost trying to defend himself and to try and defend his lifestyle. He really was trying to get his 15 minutes of fame. He really was trying to turn himself into this little TV celebrity. And one of the TV shows that he popped up on was The Jeremy Kyle Show. Now we don't have time to go into The Jeremy Kyle Show. Um, And if you haven't heard of The Jeremy Kyle Show, it's the British version of The Jerry Springer Show. I actually think it's probably even worse than the Jerry Springer show. And it's basically just where people go on to TV to air their dirty laundry and the host embarrasses them and pulls people out from their past and lie detector tests and paternity tests and You guys know the kind of TV show that I'm talking about. And the whole intention behind these shows is to sort out your family drama, get to the bottom of things and work things out, when that is not the intention of these shows. The intention of these shows is pure entertainment at others' expense. So Mick goes on the Jeremy Kyle show, and um, I don't think it went the way he wanted it to. Because everyone could see right through him. Everyone could see how cocky and narcissistic he was. He brought out Maraid his wife, on the show. He also brought out Lisa, his girlfriend, and it turns into this huge, huge, huge drama, Mick and Jeremy Kyle are shouting at one another, and it's just all very dramatic, okay? And then the next TV show that he went on, it was kind of like this reality show with politician Anne Whittacombe, and she was going around people's houses and I don't really know what the show was called, but he went on this TV show as well. And Mick is showing Anne around his house, telling her what his life is like with his wife and his girlfriend. And another thing that I actually forgot to mention, which is just another example of the kind of person Mick is, his favorite word for women was bitch. He would refer to every single woman as a bitch. And he did this quite often um, in that show with Anne Whittacombe. So when he's showing Anne around, brace yourself right now. If you're eating, please stop. Okay. So he shows Anne the front garden and then in the front garden is a caravan, which he refers to as the sex caravan. And this just makes me feel really sick. He was telling Anne that every night he would alternate between Lisa and Marade who he would take into that sex caravan. And Maraid and Lisa had no say in this, by the way. I probably should say that. And if that doesn't make you feel sick, I don't know what will. So Mick goes on to have two more children with Lisa and Mairead. There is 10, maybe 11, because the numbers aren't always clear, children in that house. They're still in that same three-bedroom house. It's just like why are you having more children? Like, why? This is just not fair. Like, we've got to take a moment now to just think about the kind of living conditions that those 10 or 11 children were in. And things stay like this for another five years until we get to February of 2012. And this is when the significant part of today's case takes place, which is just crazy to me with how much we've actually covered with Mick and how much he's actually done already. So it's February 2012, and this is when Lisa decided that she had had enough. She wanted to leave Mick. So one day, she took her five children to the swimming pool, but she didn't take them to the swimming pool. In actuality, she just left, and she never came back, and Mick absolutely lost it. So Mick started phoning her up. He started threatening her, saying things like, one day you'll pay for this. How dare you do this to me? You'll come to regret this. You can't live without me. He was also saying things like, I will make you pay for this. So ultimately, Lisa did end up going to the police about Mick, because she was genuinely scared for herself. But most importantly, her children's safety, because she knew what Mick was like. But Mick was not happy about this. He was not happy that the police had gone involved. He was not happy that he was being prevented from seeing Lisa, so he decided that he was going to start a legal battle to try and get custody of the five children. But unfortunately, when it comes to Mick Philpott, we are not dealing with someone who is a rational person. He was not going to let Lisa get away with this, and he wanted revenge. And this is when the tragic events of today's case begin to unfold. So Mick had a court date which was the 11th of May 2012 and at this court date he was expected to present evidence of why he should get custody of the children. And Mick wanted to ensure that there was no way that Lisa could win this custody battle. So Mick starts to think How am I going to make Lisa look like an absolutely terrible person, a terrible mother? And on the 10th of May 2012, which was the day before the hearing, this is when Mick carried out his plan. On the evening of the 10th of May 2012, Mick was just at home in 18 Victory Road. He was there with Mairead and he was there with his friend, Paul Mosley. Paul and Maraid both knew about Mick's plan and they were both happy to go along with it. And I feel like we do just need to take a second here to speak about Maraid. Because up until this point in the story, Maraid was a victim. She had suffered terrible abuse because of Mick. Mick had targeted her. She was so vulnerable and he had taken advantage of her over and over again. He was very abusive. He was very violent. But there was a point where Maraid went from being victim to being complicit. Going forward from this point, Maraid's actions make her just as guilty and just as despicable as Mick. And I just thought that it was important to point that out because I know that Maraid was a victim, but she is not innocent at all. And there could have been so many opportunities where she could have stopped what is going to happen from happening. So on this night Mick and Marade put the six children to bed and then they went back downstairs to their friend Paul. And after having a few drinks together, the three of them decided to have a threesome On the pool table just downstairs with six kids upstairs. It's like time and a place, people. And then after the little threesome at around 3:30 a.m., Mick decides that that is the time that they should carry out the plan, and the most unimaginable tragedy occurred. So Mick picked up a petrol can and he started pouring petrol just inside the front of his door and at the bottom of the stairs. Then whilst all six of the children were asleep upstairs, the three adults set alight the petrol and then made a quick escape from the house, just leaving all six of the children asleep in their bed. Once they were outside, Maraid called 999 to report that her house was on fire and that six of her children were inside. When Maraid was on the phone, neighbours started to notice that the house was on fire. And two of the neighbours, who happened to be brothers, Jamie and Darren Butler, rushed over to help. And as soon as they found out that there were six children trapped inside the house, the two brothers did absolutely everything that they could to try and get those children out. Whilst these two brothers are literally trying to get in the house, they are trying to find some sort of entrance into this house to get the children out, both of them are noticing... Why isn't Mick helping? Why isn't he doing more? So the two brothers run around to the back of the house and they notice that there's already a ladder propped up against the house. It goes up to an upstairs window and that window has already been smashed and the two brothers were just like This is weird. Like, what the hell? Thick black smoke is pouring out of the house. It's pouring out of that smash window, and the two brothers do try and go up the ladder to get in the house through that smash window, but there is just no way that they can get through this thick black smoke. I mean, this is a petrol fire. Mick also makes a half attempt at going up the ladder to try and get his children out. It's very half-hearted, he doesn't really try at all, he's just doing it for appearances. And firefighters do arrive on the scene pretty quickly, and when they go through the front door, they are met with the thickest black smoke imaginable. They cannot even see their hand in front of their face. And the firefighters manage to battle through the flames, and they bring all six children out of the house. All of the children were treated outside of the house by the paramedics, Dwayne, who was the eldest child in the house, he was 13 at the time, he did survive the fire and he was rushed straight to hospital. But tragically, the five younger children did not make it. They had all suffered smoke inhalation and very sadly, all five of those children were pronounced dead at the scene. These were Jade, age 10, John, age 9, Jack, age 7, Jesse, age six, and Jaden, age five. And these five children were completely innocent. They did not ask to be brought into the madness of Mixworld. world. And all five of those children lost their lives because of the decisions their own parents made. Mick and Marade. So if you hadn't realized by now, the fire was all part of Mick's plan to get revenge on Lisa. Basically, Mick thought that he could frame Lisa for the fire. Get everyone to think that it was Lisa that started the fire and that way they wouldn't grant custody to Lisa, they would grant custody of the five children to Mick. Mick thought that it was going to be so easy to frame Lisa and there was no way that anyone would give Lisa custody of any children because she started this fire. So the actual plan of Mick's, because the way the events unfolded were not part of his plan, so the original plan of Mick was to start this fire in his house, make it look like it was Lisa, and at the very last moment Mick was supposed to climb up the ladder that was already there and save all six children and be the hero of the story. Mick really is that delusional, that he thinks that he can control fire. And Maraid went along with this. She was perfectly happy to put her children in harm's way, just to please Mick. And this is what I mean, Maraid, in my opinion, is just as responsible for this fire. She helped start this fire. Both of them thought that they could do this, get away with it, and no one would be hurt. And I don't even know why Mick's friend, Paul, even went along with this. I don't know. Maybe he was scared of Mick. I think he's just as bad as Mickey if I'm being honest. So Dwayne, who was the eldest child, was the only survivor from the fire. And initially he was rushed to Derby Hospital, but he needed to be moved to a specialist hospital in Birmingham because he needed emergency support. Like his injuries, like his smoke inhalation, like it was serious. And Birmingham is about an hour away from Derby. So not the closest, but definitely not the furthest. And Mick and Maraid were offered transfer from Derby to Birmingham so they could go with Dwayne. And Mick was just like, "Ah, I don't think it's going to work for me. I've got caught in the morning. So yeah, I don't think I'm going to go with Dwayne to the hospital. You have just lost five of your children. You are responsible for losing five of your children. And your only remaining child that survived from the fire that you caused is clinging onto their life and you are not going to go to hospital with them. I literally have no words. I really don't. It's behavior like this that I just can never wrap my head around because we know that Mick started the fire, but the authorities at this point didn't. Even if he didn't care about Dwayne, because let's face it, he didn't care about Dwayne. He didn't care about anyone but himself. Why wouldn't he play along? I'm the caring dad. Like, why wouldn't he play along? This is why I don't get about these people. They hatch all of these plans and everything, and they think that they're going to get away with it, but then they don't even bloody play the part. But eventually, after a lot of persuasion from many people around Mick and Maraid, Mick and Maraid did eventually go to the hospital with Dwayne, but when Mick was at the hospital, he barely spent any time by Dwayne's side. Instead, he was going around laughing and joking around the hospital and being incredibly inappropriate with the nurses in the hospital. And I mean incredibly inappropriate, actually sexual assault. He was touching nurses inappropriately, and I just cannot wrap my head around it. It's like, how is this man allowed to get away with everything that he does? Like I said, Dwayne was literally clinging to his life. He had suffered terrible smoke inhalation, and very, very sadly, Dwayne also passed away three days after being in the hospital. So now six innocent children have died because of Mick Maraid. Following the death of Dwayne, Mick and Marade, but especially Mick, went on with their unbelievable behavior. Both of them were seen laughing and joking and just having a good time out and about. Both of them are actually seen shopping and the police had started their investigation because obviously they quickly discovered that the fire had been started with petrol. So they immediately knew that the fire had been started intentionally. So they needed to figure out, okay, well, who started this fire? And at the same time, the whole of the UK were mourning the loss of these six innocent children. The news of the fire had made national news. It was on the news every single day. It was on every single newspaper. It was absolutely everywhere. It was all anyone could talk about. And because of the heartbreaking news, donations were flooding in. People were trying to support the Philpott family in any way that they could. However, what the public didn't realize is that Mick and Maraid were using all of these donations to go shopping, to treat themselves. And Mick was absolutely loving all of this attention that he was getting. It was like he was this mini little celebrity again. So five days after the fire, Mick decided that he wanted to hold a press conference. So basically Mick only wanted to call a press conference because the story had started to drop out of the media a little bit and Mick didn't want to let go of his fame. The press conference was gonna go ahead and it was gonna get shown on TV nationwide. But what Mick didn't realize at the time is that this press conference would be the beginning of his downfall. So before the press conference, Mick met with the police officers that were like there, like running the press conference. And from the get-go, the officers thought that Mick was acting strange. Like he was just acting weird. He wasn't acting normal. Mick came in all jolly. He came in laughing. He kind of like came bounding in. And Mick was like, oh, let's get this thing started as if he was like really excited about the prospect that he was gonna be on TV. He was just rubbing his hands together like it was a big game, like it was a TV show. And then when it was the actual press conference, because obviously that was just behind the scenes, when it was the actual press conference, Mick completely changed and he turned on the crocodile tears. And this has to be, I think anyway, I don't know. It has to be the most infamous fake press conference ever. In the UK. And Mickey sat there feeling all sorry for himself. He's like dabbing his face with a tissue, even though there's no tears, and he's like trying to like make the faces as if he's crying. And it's so obvious that he's not crying. I mean, that tissue is staying dry. And Marade is just sat there next to him, and her head's down, and her forehead is all like wrinkled, and she's like pulling the face as if she's crying, and if she's sad, and it's just like, Oh my god, get over yourselves. So then Mick starts to talk. And he rambles on. He thanks everyone and their mom for what they've done. Like he literally lists off people. It's like he is accepting the award of worst dad of the year and he's giving his acceptance speech. Not one point in the whole of the press conference did Mick ever address the audience and ask for help. Because that was the whole point of this press conference. Because at this point in the investigation, Nobody knew who had started the fire. So that's why Mick had apparently called the press conference to get the public's help. But he never once, not one time, did he ask for help. He never said, help me, help me find the people that killed my children. That is what any parent would say. But Mick didn't say any of that. And Mairead didn't say anything. So the police officer that was at the press conference just found all of this behavior just incredibly suspicious. And from this point on, because of the press conference, Mick became a suspect. So the police start looking into Mick and Mairead and obviously Mick's original plan was to frame Lisa, and originally the police did suspect Lisa to begin with because of obviously all the issues and the custody battle that was going on. So the police initially did look into Lisa, but she had a solid alibi and she was ruled out pretty quickly and Mick's plan backfired. So the police look into Mick's background and it's pretty troubling, isn't it? They see that he was convicted of attempted murder and that alone made them suspect Mick even But at the moment, they only had their suspicions. They didn't have any solid evidence. So they needed some way to prove their suspicions of Mick. And the solution that the police came up with was to get secret recordings of Mick and Mairead. They wanted to bug the hotel room that they were staying in. Obviously, they were staying in a hotel because... Their house was burnt down. The police wanted to bug the hotel and the powers that the police have to do things like this are very limited. The police are not allowed to do this for just anyone. So the fact that the police were even allowed to bug this hotel room says a lot, says how strong the suspicion was. So they bugged the hotel room and the police just sat back and listened. Well, whilst Mick and Maraid were in the hotel room, their friend turns up, Paul Mosley, the other despicable person, a part of this plan. And all three of them were recorded in that hotel room. And in those recordings, all three of them were heard colluding with each other about trying to get their story straight. Mick was heard saying, quote, are we sticking to the story? I didn't mean to do it. On my life. Have they got any evidence on you? They've got nothing on me. Again, if you're eating, stop because this makes me feel sick. In one of the recordings, Mick turned to Mairead and instructed her to give Paul Mosley a blowjob to quote, keep him sweet. And the police I had to hear that. Oh, no. Following these recordings, all three of them were arrested and charged with manslaughter. They all pled not guilty and a trial date was set for February 2013. At the trial, Lisa testified against Mick and Mared. Heather, the woman that Mick had groomed from the age of 14, also took the stand to testify. She was 33 at the time of the trial and she very bravely gave evidence of everything that went on between her and Mick and after the jury had heard all of the evidence, especially the character evidence of Mick, and of course the jury heard all of the audio recordings in that hotel room, the jury found all three, Mick, Maraid and Paul, they found all three guilty of manslaughter. And they were found guilty of manslaughter and not murder because the original plan wasn't to kill the children, they wanted to save the children, so that's why they weren't charged with murder. They were charged with manslaughter instead. Both Paul and Maraid were sentenced to 17 years and Mick was sentenced to life in prison but he has to serve a minimum of 15 years, which in my opinion is not long enough. Again, Mick seems to have gone off pretty lightly. And this is just an absolutely horrific case because six innocent children were taken far too soon. They had their whole lives ahead of them. Before the trial took place in June 2012, a funeral was held for all six children and it was an incredibly sad event. So many people turned up. It was, it was so sad and Mick and Maraid were already in custody at this point, so they did not attend the funeral. Jaden, age five, was described as a bouncy and happy little boy. Jesse, age six, was said to be a cheerful little character who loved snuggling up with his brother to watch films. Jack, age 7, was described as cute, cuddly and content and just loved spending time with his brothers playing video games and watching TV. John, age 9, had a huge personality and loved having friendly competitions with his older brother Dwayne. His ambition was to become a soldier in the army. Jade, age 10, was said to be creative and a beautiful young girl with a permanent smile on her face. And Dwayne, age 13, was described as a charming and caring young boy who had taken on the role of family protector. And it's just horrible, isn't it? Um, People like Mick make me so angry. Oh God. Oh God. Wow. I think it's because I actually remember this happening. Like, I vividly remember this happening and I can remember how incredibly sad it was. And Mick, it makes me angry that he only got life, but he only has to serve 15 years. That's nothing... <laughs> That's absolutely nothing. And Maraid and Paul are already out of prison. They're already out living their lives. And in my opinion Mick should never be released ever, ever, ever. He has proven that he cannot change. And it's just incredibly sad that six innocent children lost their lives because of a narcissist. Somebody that thought they could play God. So that was the case of McPhilpot and honestly that was just an absolute horrible one wasn't it and I do apologize for bringing such a heavy case for the first episode of this podcast but this is just a case that I really wanted to share here right away. I just knew it needed to be the first case. Like I said before I have a strong personal connection with this case. I lived through it unfolding and to this day it's still makes me so infuriated. And this case definitely took an emotional toll on me when I first started the research. I think it was just a mixture of how tragic it was for the six sweet, innocent young children who lost their lives. But combining that with the fact that it felt just so close to home, it was definitely hard to get through the research. But I strongly believe it's something that needs to be talked about. We need to learn from cases like this. We need to learn if things need to be improved. We should talk openly about Mick's predatory nature so people can learn if they're stuck in a similar situation. We should talk about the failures in the justice system, about the short sentences for Mick's earlier crimes. We should always try to improve things. And just starting these conversations is one of the reasons why I do what I do. Now, since I first covered this case on my YouTube channel, there haven't been any updates to this case. Mick, thankfully, is still behind bars where he deserves to be. Honestly, he deserves to be in prison for the rest of his life. But unfortunately, I think he probably will get out at some point. But I just really hope that I'm wrong there. And that is something else that I want to do on this podcast, because a lot of the episodes have already been shown on YouTube. So if there have ever been any updates since I first shared the story, I will always try and bring them to you here at the end of the podcast episodes. But what I thought might be interesting at the end of each podcast episode is to share some of the reaction to the case that I got in the YouTube comments. Like sometimes I'll get questions and I'll think, wow, that was a good question. I wish I'd answered that in the video. So I'll try and answer those here if I can. Or I will sometimes get get comments from people that have a personal involvement in the case. And these ones are always my favorite. They are so interesting to hear. So I actually got a comment from someone that has a personal connection to Mick Philpott. And the commenter said that they remember encountering Mick Philpott when they were a teenager. And these comments are just so crazy to hear. So I am going to read out the comment because it is just so interesting. So the comment said, Mick used to drink in my parents' pub when I was a teen. He always gave me the creeps. My mom used to have to tell him to stop trying to talk to me. It became a rule to go upstairs when Mick came in. He was in the week the kids died, flinging kebab all over the floor. It gives me the shivers now thinking about it. And oh my god, when I read that, my jaw literally hit the ground because how creepy is that? It literally gives me the creeps even thinking about being in the same room as Mick, let alone being a teenager in the same room as Mick. Honestly, that would have been, oh, I can't even imagine. And the general consensus in the comments was, of course, how terrible of a person Mick Philpott was, but that is no surprise to anyone. And actually, one of the most liked comments on the video said, the phrase, all children deserve parents, but not all parents deserve children, perfectly describes this case. And I honestly, Couldn't agree more. And on that note, I think we'll end the first podcast episode here. In the next episode of The Criminal Makeup, we're going to be covering the case of the wannabe YouTuber who became a killer, Samantha Wolford. Again, this is one of my most viewed videos on my YouTube channel. It is a crazy story. I got a big reaction to it on YouTube. So I'd love it for you guys to join me in the next episode and listen along. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of the criminal makeup, and I would love it if you could leave a review. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please take the time to look at the description for this episode for some helpful resources. Special thanks to my producers at Audio Boom Studios, and I'll see you all in the next one.